The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. I'm not very old, but it's clear to me that we are living in the most divided time of my short life. It seems that these divides are found in just about every aspect of life. You you don't even have to watch the news. You can just live and feel that it seems like our society is splintering. And in a lot of ways, unfortunately, it feels that the church is following right along with the society and we are splintering, we are dividing. We must be very careful as the people of God that we remain unified together. You know, while I guess it's true that our our culture has always been divided, it seems that the divides maybe that have always existed just to seem to be getting wider and wider and wider and deeper and deeper and deeper. Much of the divides that we're experiencing and that you are probably experiencing and that you're seeing and that I'm seeing have to do with government, with politics. Now, I am not a political preacher. I don't ever want to be a political preacher. And this is not a political sermon. But how we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ relate to the government, relate to the state, relate to our governing authorities is front and center in this interaction that Jesus has with some of his opposition that we see in Mark chapter 12. This is a passage of scripture I've never preached on. This is It might be a passage of scripture that I maybe would never preach on because I don't want to be a political preacher, but therein lies the beauty of consecutive exposition, verse by verse through books of the Bible. It pushes you to preach the full counsel of of God's word. This is where we are this morning, and I pray that we will be a people that think biblically and clearly on how we are to interact with our governments, our culture, our society, in the realm of our ruling authorities. Jesus is in his last week of his earthly ministry. The opposition against him is is growing. This is probably the Wednesday before the Friday where he will be crucified. And so his opposition is growing. And we've seen this opposition grow and grow and grow. But this morning in this text, we see um, a shift, a change, 
a development in this opposition. We see two groups of people who are usually at odds with one another, usually very much divided, but they have now found a cause to unite around, and that is the hatred of Jesus and the desire to get rid of him. This is what Mark tells us, that verse 13, that they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians in an effort to trap him in his talk. Now, we don't have a whole lot of time this morning to go into the background of the Pharisees and the Herodians. So we'll just sort of give a, a, a summary of them. The Pharisees are incredibly nationalistic in terms of Israel. They want to see the nation of Israel restored to its rightful place. Politically, that's where they are. Religiously, they are very narrow-minded, very strict adherents to Judaism. They would be considered in our vernacular, the conservatives. And then you have the Herodians. You can see the the root word here, that of Herod. These are Jews that have sided with Rome. They are in with the Romans. Pharisees despise Rome. The Herodians in with the Romans. They would be better understood as synchronistic, uh, practicing a syncretism. Syncretism is sort of where you take different pieces of different religions and sort of meld them together. Not strict adherence to Judaism. Yes, they're Jews, but they also take in all of these other things. In our vernacular, they would be considered the liberals. And so now you have Pharisees and Herodians who are usually at odds with one another, united in their desire to see Jesus silenced because he is a threat to each of them. So they hatch this plan together. And they come up with what they think is the best possible question to catch Jesus in a trap. See, the the plan here is let's ask Jesus a question. Let's ask him really just a simple yes or no question. And it doesn't matter how he answers, if he answers yes or if he answers no. Regardless of the answer, somebody would have a cause to silence him. And so they ask him this question, but not before they butter him up a little bit. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, by the outward, but you teach truly the way of God. Now, that is absolutely the truest thing they have ever said but I don't think they mean a word of it. 
I don't think they really believe that Jesus teaches truly the things of God or they wouldn't be at odds with him. What they're, they're doing is, you know, probably in a, in a vain attempt to butter him up to get him to answer the question and also to sort of lay the groundwork for all the people around him that says, this man, he's, he's not answering the question based on who's asking him the question. He's telling us what he really thinks when it pertains to the teaching of, of God, just to cement this calls that one of these groups of people would have against him. And so they ask him this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So there's this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Yes or no? Now there's really three options that Jesus has, as they see it at least, in answering this question, right? The first option would be for Jesus to say, no, no, it's not okay to pay taxes to Caesar. See, a a Pharisee would say that. No, it's not okay to pay taxes to Caesar. They hate paying taxes to Caesar. And if Jesus was to answer that question by saying no, then Rome would have a cause against him right? Then Jesus would be considered by Rome to be an insurrectionist, rising the Jews up against Rome. And then what could Rome do in response? Rome could take his life. If he answers no, then Rome can kill him. But if he answers yes, then the Jews would have a cause against him saying that Jesus is a traitor to Israel. So this is supposed to be the Messiah? This is supposed to be the son of David? This is supposed to be the the long-awaited one that's come to restore Israel? He just said it's right and okay to pay taxes to Rome. You see, they hated taxes. These taxes were a reminder of their subjugation under Rome. And if Jesus answered yes, while he may not lose his life, he certainly would lose his popularity and, in essence, be silenced among the Jews. Or third, he could just ignore the question altogether. And if he did, then both sides would have reasons to tell the crowd, look, he can't even answer this question. Why are you following him or listening to him at all? But Jesus is no ordinary man, is he? He is God in the flesh. And he has the ability to see into the hearts of men. And he knows what they are seeking. And Jesus has an intelligence far greater than any other. Because he is the fount of all wisdom. And so he sees through this attempt. Mark tells us, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So Jesus asks for a coin. A denarius it was a small Roman coin. Exactly the same size as a dime. And it would be representative of one day's wage. So if you worked 
then for a day you would get a, a denarius. That, that, that was a, a, the average day's wage. And it was also the amount of the poll tax or the census tax, which was a, a yearly tax that had to be paid to Rome by everyone within their borders so that they then could get an accurate count of how many people were there. So every year you would come and you would pay your your poll tax, your census tax, and it would be a denarius. And it is probably this poll tax that the these Pharisees and Herodians are asking Jesus, is it okay to pay or not? The tax he's asking there, it's not a sales tax, not income tax as we know it. It's it's this poll tax. And so Jesus asks for this, this coin. You see, a Jew would have hated this coin because it was representative of Rome lording over them and the fact that they had lost their rightful place as the nation of Israel. On one side of this coin, there would be an image And that image was of Caesar. And under the image, there would be a a description in Latin translated to say, the son of divine Augustus. And then on the back were the words in Latin that would translate to high priest. Now, think about that for just a second. Here is Jesus saying, give me this this coin. The coin which on one side showed Caesar claiming to be the son of God. And on the other side, claiming to be the high priest. And so Jesus asks... Somebody give me a coin. And they brought one to him. And Jesus asks again, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they answered him and they said, Caesar's. And so Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus brilliantly answers their question in a way that is simultaneously able to make all sides okay and teach us in his answer how we are to relate to the ruling authorities. Jesus wasn't just appeasing them. Jesus was answering their question, and in answering their question, he shows us, he tells us how we are to relate to our ruling authorities. Now, this this verse right here, this statement by Jesus has had volumes written on it. Volumes upon volumes upon volumes written on it. And those volumes are not my focus this morning. 
My focus is both on what Jesus has to say here in this text and its implications for us today and the larger and expanded teachings that we find in the scriptures to help us think clearly and biblically in a culture that is anything but clear and biblical. Make sense? But if you want to dig into this, go read Calvin. Tons and tons and tons and tons on this verse. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In this phrase, we have laid before us the beginnings of a blueprint to think biblically and clearly on the issues of the state, government, and politics. What is Jesus saying when he said these words? Well, the first thing that we need to understand is that God and government are not the same thing. Now, that sounds simple to us Americans. Wouldn't have been simple understanding in their days because they didn't see these things as different, God and and government. They did not see Caesar and God as different. Remember, this is what's on the inscription of the coin, son of divine Augustus, that whoever the, the emperor is, whoever the Caesar is, is God. And so when Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God, the implication here is that these things are different and they should be treated differently. Okay? The reality for us is not that we have a president who claims to be God, but the reality for us is that if we're not careful, we set politics up as a God. And politics make a lousy God. Politics make a lousy God. Why are we living our lives to serve politics? To serve a a political party? There is someone and something bigger that we are called to live for. More on that in just a little bit. The second thing that Jesus means when he says to give to Caesar what is Caesar's is that there is an appropriate loyalty required for us to give to the state. That there is an appropriate level of loyalty to the government, to the state. The the sort of base level understanding is that the state, that governments are valid institutions and that their validity comes not from their platforms, not from their stances. Their validity comes from the fact 
that God himself has ordained them. That's why they're valid. And the reality is that that holds true even when you or I think that the government is bad or wrong. It does not make it any less valid. It does not make it as having its origins from God being any less true. Now you might be thinking, yeah, but Jason, I mean, when you've got a government that does this and does this and does this and does this and does this, how can that be from, from God? Well, you think Rome was good when Jesus said this? You see, their leader didn't just have bad politics, did he? Their leader thought he was a god. And yet Jesus says, give to Caesars what is his. We're we're about to, to read from Romans. We're about to read from 1 Timothy, where Paul is teaching how we should interact with the government, you need to understand when Paul says these words, it's not just that, oh, I don't like their politics. No, they're actively seeking to put to death Christians. And yet, God's word has to say what God's word says. Give to Caesar What is Caesar's? He says that. Jesus says that while he's holding up a coin. And he asks, whose image is on this coin? And they tell him Caesar. See, the understanding was in their day that any coin belonged to whichever sovereign's image was on that coin, regardless of whose possession it was in. So you might have possession of that coin, but because it had Caesar's face on it, that coin is really Caesar's coin. So Jesus holds it and says, this belongs to him, give it to him. Honor the governing authorities in an appropriate way. That's the implication here. Now, Paul expands on this, Romans chapter 13 Starting in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Listen, there is no footnote, go down, see this other clause that says, oh, but, right? This is the truth regardless of who is in charge. I can promise you that the ruler of Rome, when Paul wrote this, which very well could have been into Nero's time, unbelievable, what was happening to Christians. That whoever it was 
was far worse than Joe Biden, far worse than Donald Trump, whatever you may think of either one of them. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Then Paul continues, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, you may read this and think, this is confusing to me. How can someone who maybe even doesn't acknowledge the existence of God and certainly doesn't have policies that would line up with the teachings of God's word, how can they be a servant of God? Because that's what Paul calls them here. Here's what Paul is saying, that government, that social structure, and that authority is for our good because it works to restrain chaos. That's Paul's point. That God is using authorities, government, the state, rulers, for our good. Because in it, it restrains chaos. And we as believers are to live as good law-abiding citizens within the governmental authorities. There's so much in this that... We do not have time to to talk, but I do believe that there should be a level of separation between the church and the state, and that the state shouldn't be able to rule over the church. But there is always, and necessarily, and it's it's God-ordained overlap between the two. And they come in the form of Moral laws. So if if the state sets a law that says it is wrong to murder, that is a moral law. And the reason why it's wrong to to murder is it's a theological statement that says because then there is inherent value in a person. You see, God is is using the government for our good as the two overlap. And we're to be good, law-abiding citizens. Paul goes on to say this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, 
I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. You know, I've had a number of people come up to me and they ask me, Jason, what are we to do? What are we to do in this society where it seems like everything that we hold dear as orthodox believers in Jesus Christ is is under attack? How are we to respond? What are we to do? Y'all ever feel that way? What are we to do? How are we to live in this season that we're in of political division and turmoil? How are we to live? I think this verse right here is the roadmap. This is it. Paul tells us how to live. Because remember, in his day, way more political turmoil than in our day. Way more assault on the church than in our day. And what does Paul say? Well, first he says, pray. Pray. First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Pray. And then do what? Be peaceful. Live a quiet life. My goodness, if that's not the opposite of our current culture, I don't know what is. Everyone wants a platform. Everyone wants a megaphone. Everybody goes on social media and blasts their opinions out for everyone to see and then argues with every single comment that's posted. Is that living a quiet, peaceable life? Pray and live a quiet, peaceable life. Be godly and be dignified in every way. Church, this is how we are to be a culture within a culture. Because nowhere else is this kind of life lived. Where else are people being Peaceable and quiet and godly and dignified. Nowhere. But this is how we're called to live. This is how we're called to be different. Church, we were made for this. This is the kind of season we are made for. Because it's in these kinds of seasons that we are absolutely and totally and completely different than the culture around us. As we're peaceable and we're quiet and we're godly and we're dignified. We do that as a culture in a culture. You see, this is why the scriptures call us sojourners and exiles. Not exiles in that we are revolutionaries. Not exiles as in that we're, we're here to lead a revolt. 
But exiles in that this is not our home and how this culture lives is not how our culture lives. And we're different. Allegiance to God and allegiance to the government are not always opposed to each other. In our allegiance to God, we show honor and respect to those he has placed above us, even when we disagree, regardless of who's in charge. Now, you probably have a question, right? I'm guessing you do. I have one. But isn't there a limit? Isn't there a limit to where we have to stand up and say, enough is enough, no more, it's time to fight? Isn't there a limit? And I would say that there is a limit. Yes, there are limits. But those limits aren't what we want to make them. Those limits are what we see in the scriptures. Simply put, here's the limit. If we are asked or commanded to violate a command of God, we do not submit. All right? That's scriptural. That's biblical. Be it issues that we see are immoral or issues that violate a Christian conscience. I'm going to give you some examples of how this is biblical. First example, probably one of the clearest in God's word, is found in Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar has created a golden idol, and he set it out in the, in the desert, and he's commanded that at any time when you hear music, you are to turn and you are to worship this idol. And that goes out, it's a decree from the king throughout the land. But there's three men who loved and feared God and they were not willing to violate the commands of God. And who were those three men? Their names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they refused to, to bow down and to worship this idol because in doing so, it would violate the commands of God. And they trusted God. They obeyed God, trusted him with the consequences. And because of their disobedience to the king, they were thrown into a fiery furnace to be burned alive, and yet they were not burned. Jesus was there with them in the fiery furnace. That's one example. Another example comes in the New Testament. You see it in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John have been preaching, probably preaching in the very place where Jesus gives this teaching. And so they're gathered up by the Jewish rulers and leaders, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. And guess what they did? They left and violated that command and continued to preach. So where's the limit? The limit is 
when we are asked or commanded to violate a clear command of God or to go against our Christian conscience. That's the limit. The limit isn't policies we just don't happen to agree with. You see, there is a biblical loyalty to the state. You can't ignore it. And there is a greater loyalty to God. They are not always at odds with one another, but on the rare occasions that they are, we are called to honor God and to do so in a peaceable and quiet way. You see, the command of living peaceable and quiet lives doesn't go away when something like this arises. Go back and read Daniel chapter 3. Had, had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had Facebook, they wouldn't have posted on there. We ain't bowing down and worshiping, and you shouldn't either. And if you do, you're a horrible person. No. Even, even when they're confronted by the king, they show the king honor and respect. They call him, oh, king. They don't say, uh-uh, you're not my king. This should be a model for us and how to live in these days. If I was going to boil it down to one sentence with a good bit of alliteration in it, this would be what it is. Follow your Christian conscience with clarity and civility for the cause of Christ. Follow your Christian conscience with clarity and civility for the cause of Christ. Now, that means something very important. There's an implication there, right? The implication is that you have a developed Christian conscience, which means you need to know the Word of God, you need to love the Word of God, you need to seek to obey the Word of God to develop a a clear biblical Christian conscience. That the Holy Spirit needs to be working in your life and you need to be bearing fruit. See, we've got a whole lot of of so-called believers who have no developed Christian conscience that then stand up and say, this violates my conscience, and they do so in a way that's not peaceable and it's not godly and it's not dignified. They all work together. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, Jesus says. And to God the things that are God's. Now when Jesus says this, render to God the things that are God's, remember the visual here. The visual is a coin with the image of Caesar and the understanding that because it bears his image, it belongs to him, right? That's their understanding. Well, the same is true for God. The things that bear his image belong to him. Jesus asks the question, whose likeness is on it? Whose image is on it? That was Jesus' question. That's the exact same word used in Genesis chapter 1. Now, Genesis 1 is Hebrew. This was Greek or Aramaic, but we've got the Septuagint. It's the same word. Same exact word. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Here's what that means. That means that because you bear the image of God, your life belongs to him. All of it. Jesus is saying, look, you give the coin to Caesar. You give the the right degree of respect and honor to the governing authorities. But you give your whole life to God. You see, the coin, what's rendered unto Caesar as Caesar's, there's limitations to that. There are no limitations to what belongs to God. Your allegiance to him is unlimited. But we seem to get it backwards. We let the political winds dictate our emotions and our moods and our outlooks. And it causes us great joy or it causes us great sorrow. We find unification in those who are politically like us and are separated from those who are not. And we give no thought to the Lord. Your whole life belongs to him. Honor your authorities. Be good citizens. Live peaceable, quiet lives. But more than anything, live for the glory of God in every part of your life. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. God, would you help us? Would you help us not get these things different, get them switched up in our thinking and in our hearts where we have more allegiance to a political party or a platform that it dictates our our lives in, in such a way that we stop giving thought to the truth that we are image bearers of you. And that as image bearers, you rightly lay claim to all of our life. All aspects of our life are yours. God, would you help us be a, a culture within a culture, a people who think clearly and biblically, who honor our authorities, who pray for them, who seek to live peaceable quiet lives, godly and dignified. Give us clarity on when the limit is reached. Give us wisdom on how to respond. Help us fight the schemes of the devil that seek to divide. Even within your church, seek to divide 
where we find our ultimate unity in the reality that each and every one of us are image bearers of God and our lives belong to him and that we've been ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May your church be the single place in our culture of sanity and grace and wisdom for your glory and for the salvation of many. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.